This is a CBC podcast. The following podcast is about family relationships and the harms of colonization on Indigenous people in Canada. It contains depictions of racism and abuse. If you need support, you can find information about where to turn for help at cbc.ca/theherboriginal. This is my dad. I am Chief Nishwibas, successor to Sakwaid of the Gitandau tribe of the Chimshan Nation of the northwestern British Columbia. A fisherman, a union boss, an athlete, a musician, a cultural leader. But he was also angry and violent. And the last great chief of the nine allied tribes of the Simshan Nation. Nice we boss. My name is Rudy Kelly. I'm First Nations from the Simshan Nation. I live in Prince Rupert, British Columbia. I have shined shoes, sold scrap metal, cut the heads off of fish, and reported for the local daily news. I'm also a playwright, performer, and author. And I'm the father of three boys. But one thing I have never really been is a good Indian. This series is my journey to find out who and what my dad really was and to discover who I am. This is the Herb Original, Episode 1, Do the White Thing. Is it, is it going running now? It's running. Okay. <laughs> I hadn't thought much about my dad since he died. Not until I started a new job. An oral history project involving indigenous people in the community. So what are we talking about today? Your life. You're filming all that stuff. Yeah, all right. But along with the stories, my dad's name just kept coming up. And in glowing terms. You know, I also had a good relationship with Daddy. Like I say, he used to play with uh, Steve and them down there, the Moose Hall. Yeah. Every Saturday, every weekend. Hey, they dance. We go down. We never missed a dance, hey, when they, oh, yeah. they played, you know. <laughs> and I love I love listening to him play and hearing him. Hey. They told me that my dad was everything. A noble chief, a true leader of his people. Immensely talented as an athlete, musician, and jokester. And generous. He would give you the button blanket off his back. Libby this, Libby that. And he had a real kind spirit, man. He never raised his voice to anyone that I can remember. He's always, he talks, when he talks, he really means business, pinpointing what he knows, the tribe or the village, things like that. I mostly remember the yelling. You're useless! His huge fist coming at me whenever I spilled his tea or got in trouble. 
and my mom sobbing after he'd come home in the early hours. How is the little boy to sleep? I had almost forgotten the sound of his voice until one day when I heard that a recording of my dad was being used in a museum exhibit in Ottawa. Huh, was my reaction, and I got on with my life. Even when a work conference brought me to Ottawa, I told myself there were better things to do, like see Parliament, take a bus to Montreal, watch a hockey game. I didn't want to hear his voice again. I didn't want anything to do with the exhibit. He had not been a good father or husband. Why should this exhibit matter to me? But then, it's my last morning in Ottawa. My bags are packed and my flight home is still a few hours away. I can't shake him. As much as I want to deny him, I go to the museum. As I near the First Nations wing, my stomach tightens. It's huge and airy and covered in indigenous art from my territory. And at the end of the room, that voice. I am Chief Nishwebaas, successor to Shakwait of the Gitandot tribe of the Chimshan Nation of the Northwestern British Columbia. It stops me in my tracks. It's as if his big fist is wrapped around my heart. I want to turn and leave. But I take a deep breath. And keep going. And there he is. My father's face. Once so big and full is now flat and translucent. His image is projected onto a child-sized, dark gray statue of a chief. It feels like something out of a Star Wars movie. Obi-Wan Kenobi's flickering hologram announcing that Luke Skywalker is ready. Ready to become the next Jedi Master. My father had given me a similar speech. He said I was the one the one who was getting out of the crab bucket, to succeed in the white man's world. But to do that, he told me I would have to leave everything behind. Family, friends, culture. I would have to become an herb original. I first heard the word when I was working at an indigenous service agency. We would joke about being city folk, not reserve Indians. And we'd feel a little embarrassed when there were ceremonies, or when we were around elders, because we knew so little of the old ways. The name stuck with me because I've never felt like a real Indian. I've always been an outsider. But then, at a truth and reconciliation walk I was at, I found out other people identified with the name too.
person living away from their land. I don't know. That's how I would get it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> Displaced near, but near if I It's someone living in a city, they're Aboriginal. So here's my question. I'm doing a... Uh, you cover your ears first, because I want to I wanna get a separate answer. Okay. This is Russell Mather. So, Russell, I'm doing a podcast titled The Herb Original. Now, when you hear that word, what do you think it means? Uh, First Nations infused into the city system. Okay, Vince. Uh, very white Indians. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. Uh, preserve, like me. <laughs> I'm an urbanite. <laughs> All the definitions of an herb original, they describe me pretty well. An indigenous person who never lived on the reserve, who grew up with only some cultural traditions, and, in my case, did what was necessary to survive in the white world. Welcome, welcome all people of the world to the land of my ancestors. I hope that you will enjoy your journey to this ancient village site. As I listened to my dad's voice echoing across one of Canada's most important museums, I remember how pleased he was when I took my place in an institution dominated by white people. I became a full-fledged journalist. I was the flag-bearer in the white world, and he was the flag-bearer in the indigenous world. Did he have any idea how that role would tear me apart? leaving me straddled between two worlds, accepted by none. Now, hearing his voice at the museum, I feel like I should feel the same kind of pride that he felt for me, for all that he accomplished as the leader of his nation. But instead, I feel anger, and more than that, I feel sad. He was a big man, but he looked so small in this cavernous space. I'm transfixed. Here I am, a decade after his death, face to face with him, out of sorts, a little boy, not sure of what I'm feeling. Distraught, I turn away to leave the room. I half expect to hear him calling out after me. Release me, boy! Don't leave me here! My dad's voice was recorded in 1988. Yeah, this is a story of High Mass. High Mass was one of the uh, bravest men, and he came from the Kitsis tribe. I remember it because I had just returned home from journalism school for my first full-time reporter job with the Prince Rupert Daily News. I was staying with my parents in their small apartment when, one day, 
there was a knock at the door. It was a museum researcher, and he was laden with recording equipment, microphones, headphones, and cords. The sessions with the researcher lasted a couple of days. I remember him and my dad sitting at the table, one of those old plastic tables with a dark brown wooden design. A tape recorder sat between them, and my dad was sitting in his favorite chair, the one against the wall, the same spot where, a few years later, he'd be sitting in a wheelchair, cursing his existence. But with the tape recorder rolling, my dad was holding court. Hours and hours of recordings capturing his knowledge of the Simshan people. I can still picture my mom in the background, serving endless cups of tea, sandwiches and snacks. My dad, smiling broadly. Henry Libby Kelly, by then ill and mostly a shut-in, was Nice Wibas, the great hereditary chief, again. Someone looked up to, respected, listened to. Those tapes were recently recovered and, unbeknownst to me, shared with local education institutions. And then with me. I got a Facebook message. My mind was on something else, so I didn't really read the message. I just clicked on the link. This is the the talk about how we first lost, uh, how we first uh, lose our, our, our culture and tradition. It startled me. My heart clenching at the sound of his voice. My dad reaching from beyond the grave through the static hiss. I had to lean back in my chair, putting physical distance between myself and my computer speaker. It was like he's right there, looking at me, telling his story, and reminding me that we were not yet done with each other, that I still have a long journey to discover who I am on my path as an herb original. To learn more about my dad, my family, my earliest years, I know where I must start. And I know the one person who can bring me there, to the place where my story begins. Erwin is my second oldest brother. At 70 years old, he's been through a lot. And, like most of the family, he spent his life working in the fish plant. But he still has his humor, and he's always there for me when I need him. All right. Here we go. (laughs) When he picks me up in his old black van, he's excited to take me back to Port Edward, which locals shortened to Port Ed, and is only a 20-minute drive from Prince Rupert. All right. And uh, how was your halibut at Breakers? Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah, I like yams. Yeah, yam fries, the potatoes. We're going there so I can see where my family first lived. To get an idea of what it looked like back then. To help me understand what this place was to my sisters and brothers, my parents, and the thousands of other indigenous families who left their home villages to work in the canneries. 
Okay, we're running to get some gas now? Yes. Okay. As we pass the overgrown lots and old dilapidated docks, Irwin starts to share. Well, he stayed at, well, there was a, the white villas, right? The white villas, the Chinese bunkhouse, a few, uh, the, but we are easily the dominant people there because we had the native village. There was at least, at least 700. 700 of us staying in that the native village right next to the cannery. Oh, okay. We were dominant. We were more than the whites, the Chinese, and the natives, and the Japanese together, but we played together as as kids. We had snowball fights, and <laughs> it, it was weird how it ended up. We always seemed to gang up on the white people. <laughs> it was, Funny that way. Yeah, it was hilarious. It's always a diverse uh, society like that. It was always good to grow up on that side. Man. No, so, I, had, I had a really good childhood. What? Did he just say he had a really good childhood? There was so much anger, so much violence. But as we look around, he smiles. We used to go fishing over here, catch trout. We didn't even know about springs being going through there. Hmm. And the biggest berries in the world, right across that big island there, right, that big big forest. Yeah. We used to walk across the pipeline to go get blueberries. There was huge, we just, the thing there just bent down and didn't take us long to fill up our bucket. We never, I don't think we ever filled it up. We ate too much. Then we get out of the car. And Irwin shows me where the Japanese, Chinese, and indigenous people worked on the canning lines and in the net lofts. The communal outhouses suspended on a dock. No, no, it was a big hole, big hole in the ground. So we used to go, we used to go collect bottles, beer bottles. And uh, we used to <laughs> shoot at the, the bare bums taking a shit, right? Just yeah. something to do that. <laughs> What do you do when you're kids, right? And you used to hear the women or whoever was in there scream their head off. <laughs> yeah, it made a lot of noise. Oh, man. And Irwin points out the best places to catch flounder, which he would sell at a nickel apiece to the workers living in a Chinese bunkhouse. At the top of a hill above the railway tracks, Irwin and I pull over. We get out of the car and take a short walk to the highest point. Irwin stops and takes a good look around. I can see that he is somewhere else. Another time. Right around there, and we stayed like... Right there. Right by the point there. Right by the point, the first point there. That's what, That used to be probably where our house was. He is pointing at a bunch of rotten logs jutting out of the water, the waves pushing up at them. You could still see pilings, right? Yeah. But that's all it was. I remember, I remember Dad and him used to do that. He started out making pilings, doing pilings on the boat. They used to go underneath the dock there and replace the pilings. They used to cut it down, bump it, and it fell in the water. And boy, that was a lot of work for them. But that's how he started out. I remember him doing that in a big boat. I used to watch them climbing around underneath. 
It's hard for me to imagine. My dad down there in the freezing waters of the Pacific Ocean. Raising creosote-covered logs instead of totem poles. Exchanging cannery coupons to keep us fed. And being just a number, living in a shack with little real money. He forgot his lunchbox. Mom <laughs> sent me to get his lunchbox. So I'm about 30 feet behind him. Mom was catching up and then the boss came out. And he, I heard them yapping away all of a sudden. <laughs> he smacked the boss and then the guy said, you're, you're through, Kelly, you're through, you're fired. <laughs> and I ran home and I took the, told mom what happened about dad getting fired and said, oh no. <laughs> he came home and, uh, you know, he, yeah, he wasn't too happy. Maybe the day he punched his work foreman was him forcing the issue. A way of telling my mom we had to go instead of having to explain why. What were your feelings when, when you found out that we were moving into Prince Rupert? It was kind of, it was a surprise. Like, I knew what happened, why we, we moved abruptly, but we, I didn't have time to think about it. I, I mean, being, being a kid 10 years old, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it was a new adventure. You're like you're going to a big city or something like that because all my favorite stores were in Prince Rupert and the carnival was there. So uh, I missed my friends, but uh, years later they said, hey, what happened to you? We missed you. One, <laughs> one day you were there, next thing you were gone. Moving to Prince Rupert would mean more opportunities, more stores, more schools, recreation facilities, jobs that paid entirely in real money a place where we could own a house. By golly, we could almost be white. In the next episode of The Herb Original, I go back to my early days in Prince Rupert, where the old trope of cowboys versus Indians still held sway. How people were treated if back then especially and I mean it still happens today let's be honest um, and so I decided to fly under the radar but the divisions between the white people and the indigenous people were starting to crumble leaving some indigenous people like me in a no man's land or signing into the white man's club having a good home two cars a picket fence no slurs no denied entry what my father wanted, hoped for me, when he sent me away. And all I have to do is be like them. That's in Episode 2, Apache Passing. The Herb Original is written and produced by me, Rudy Kelly and Carolina DeWright. The sound editing is by Jeff Walter. Special thanks to Jeremy Paul and the Simshan Language Authority for the archival footage of my dad, Chief Nis Wibas. Listen to your heart and you'll know what to do. And a special dedication to the late Clarence Martin, who also took me around Port Ed to remember the good old days. Listen to your heart. Rest in peace, friend. And you'll pull through. At least I hope you do. Our senior producers are Catherine Hansen, Jay Pernoli, and Sheral Tobin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.